Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Thanks for joining me. If you're new here, or if you're not new and you don't know who I am, what I do, I'm a functional medicine practitioner, certified functional medicine practitioner. Some people call themselves functional medicine practitioners and they're not really. Like they just call themselves that or they say they're functional and they're not. Like some naturopaths can do that or some integrative doctors can say they're functional, but there's a huge difference. I just got done doing an interview with Keith Norris for an event he has coming up. Keith is the guy who created Paleo FX. And I I made that big distinction because a lot of people go to naturopaths or they say they're functional or an integrative doctor and they're not because they, they still prescribe antibiotics. They still prescribe other pharmaceuticals. That's not functional. Functional is figuring out the root cause of the issue. Even if I could prescribe drugs, I cannot with my credentials, but even if I could prescribe pharmaceuticals, I would not do it. So anyway, that's the deal there. Now, we're going to get into an episode today with the surgeon who did my cavitation procedure, Dr. Stuart Nunnally, who is a dentist who practices in Texas. And I forgot to mention something in this interview, so let me mention it now. You probably don't need and probably should not get a cone beam. A cone beam is a type of x-ray. It's like a 3D imaging x-ray that they can do on you, which looks into various dimensions, so to speak, that a normal x-ray cannot do. However, this does submit you to radiation. Now, the normal background day-to-day radiation Everyone get everyone gets exposed to this living on planet Earth. Now, the the radiation from a cone beam, which we're going to discuss what that is and why to use it, it's about 14 days worth of normal background radiation. So it's not a terrible amount. It's not like a full body CT scan or anything crazy. It is some radiation, not a huge amount. But I, I wasted it. I got radiated for no reason because his office didn't end up using my cone beam. They used an older panoramic X-ray that worked just as good that I had from several years before. So I technically did not need to damage my cells with radiation, and I did it anyway. So that's my only regret. I forgot to mention that on the on the podcast here, that you don't have to do that. A panoramic x-ray, which we do discuss, should probably be fine to investigate to see if you have cavitations. What are cavitations? You'll figure it out, but it's an infection in your jawbone. This has been a big needle mover for my health journey, and I suspect many of my clients have this issue that likely needs to be investigated at some point in their journey. How big of a needle mover? Depends on the person. For me, I stopped having heart palpitations, but nothing else has changed too much. Maybe a little more energy, a little more of this, a little less of that. Not a not a 80% needle mover like getting rid of infections, but it was something that did help me. I do feel way better. The biggest needle mover for me, cleaning up my diet, going to bed on time, testing my gut and figuring out I had H. pylori, I had Giardia, I had Cryptosporidium, I had bacterial infections, I had Candida overgrowth, I had adrenal problems, I had mitochondrial issues, I had pesticides and other toxins which were much higher than the safe limits, I had elevated reverse T3 levels which was blocking my my free T3 from getting into the proper receptor site, I had messed up circadian rhythm, had to address that, I needed more light exposure, That was something that was tough for me because I used to work night shift back in the day. Uh, Those are all the biggest needle movers. And then this procedure that I had here to me was like the icing on the cake. And I don't claim to ever be done and to figure every little thing out. But figuring this out was great. And I'm glad that I did this and I don't regret it. I do regret the radiation I had from the cone beam. But the procedure itself was a piece of cake. Spent some money on it, but I do feel better. 
So that's it. If you want to reach out, schedule a consult with me. I talk about all these issues on a daily basis. I test people around the world. No matter where you're at, you can get testing done. If you're international, doesn't matter. You pay a little more for shipping, but if you're in the U.S., you know, pretty much all your shipping of your test kits and all that's free. And I love working with people, helping you get to the root cause of your health issues. If you want to figure out exactly what do I help with and maybe everything is not on the list because I help with some stuff that's not on the list, but there is a list on my site. If you go evanbrand.com, E-V-A-N, last name brand, B-R-A-N-D, go evanbrand.com, click on the bottom. You can look at conditions. That's the stuff I work on. Anything from methylation issues to Lyme disease to chronic fatigue to adrenal problems to just you're tired. You don't know why. You feel like crap. Your gut's messed up. You can't sleep. Blood pressure issues. That's the stuff. So go look at the list, and then you can schedule a call at the website if you need help. I've also got Megan on staff. She's also certified in functional medicine and nutritional therapy like me. I've trained her for the past coming up on two years now. So if you need to be seen sooner and I don't have as much availability, you can get scheduled with her as well. Uh, People have been asking me about my course. I'm trying to make this a short intro, but now it's long, so I'm sorry. My course is coming my functional medicine training course. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm over halfway done with it. Every time I think I'm done, which you probably imagine this, me me being me and you knowing me and how my brain works, as soon as I think I'm done, I fully flushed out this idea. Then I'm like, wait a second. If that happens, then you got to address this, then you have to address that. So then it ends up causing me to create a whole new section of a module that I didn't expect to create originally. So I have a really, really good outline But now that outline is growing like a big spider web because this tangent's connected to that tangent. This body system's connected in that body system. And I forgot to mention that's connected to that. So the course is going to be insanely good, but it's just not done yet. So I apologize and I hope to have that course out to you all as soon as possible. But in the meantime, then you'll just have to hold on, I guess. I mean, there's other courses out there, but this one's going to be the best in my opinion. Maybe there's some that look a little fancier. Maybe there's some that have better marketing or better logos or better this or that. But in terms of the clinical data, which a lot of the education I've had was not very clinical. It was more like book education. The clinical stuff matters. you got to know what do you do with the client. If this happens, what do you do then? If that's going on at the same time as this, how do you approach that? The clinical stuff is so important. There's still some book knowledge and tons of literature and published research I'm putting in my course, but a lot of this is like, man, how do you get your hands dirty in the trenches and how do you solve issues? That's what you care about in my opinion. I don't think you care about knowing this enzyme does this to that enzyme and this pathway does that. I do teach some of that, but more of it's how do you make an action step based on the data, based on the testing and the proper testing at that. So that's my course. It's called the Functional Academy of Medicine and Epigenetics, and it is coming soon. How soon? I don't know. I'm going to be like Elon Musk, where he says soon, and then maybe it's like a few months, right? I'm not sure exactly the timeline yet, but it will be out eventually, and it's going to be awesome. So that's it. I'll quit talking. Enjoy this interview with Dr. Nunnally. Dr. Nunnally, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Evan. So let's chat about teeth. This is so fun for me. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I look at now and I say, you probably have cavitations after looking at them. Uh, I mean, some of the numbers that I've seen, and maybe you can tell me your opinion, is that 90% of people who get wisdom teeth removal or 12-year molar removal, up to 90%, if not more, of those people have cavitations. Is that what you think, or you think it's lower, higher? I think it's accurate. 
90 percent is probably a real good number especially in the wisdom teeth sites that's a site where we have a fairly poor blood flow to the jaw bones anyway and then when those teeth are removed oftentimes they don't completely heal and you end up with this necrotic area in the either the mandible or the maxilla jaw bones tell people what a cavitation is because when i went to you know when i was before I came to see you, I was working with a local dentist to try to just get the 3D cone beam done. And I, and they said, well, do you want to be a patient here? I'm like, no, I just want to get the cone beam. Can I just pay cash out of pocket to get the cone beam done? I said, I'm looking for cavitations. And then by the time I left, they said, yeah, our dentist was back there Googling, what is a cavitation? <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's interesting. And that's probably pretty typical because even I – Evan, I didn't know what a cavitation was until maybe 20 years ago. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I, I had never heard the term. And I was, I was at a brain longevity conference. I was the only dentist, and I was sitting next to this brilliant lady physician who had an integrative medical clinic. She said she found out I was a dentist. She said, do you do cavitations? And I said, of course I do. She said, you do. I said, yes. She said, I can't, I, I can't tell you how many of our patients come from around the world. We, we do these elaborate workups on them. We cannot figure out what the cause of their systemic illness is. And she said, I can't tell you how many of them get well when we send them to have their cavitations cleaned out. Well, I thought she meant cavities. I had no clue what, that she was talking about cavitations in the jawbone. I thought she meant cavities in teeth. Well, cavitations in the jawbone are typically caused most often from an extraction that goes bad. The patient's typically not aware of it, but the bacteria from the mouth get into the site or, or the site may already be infected in the first place. We grow a little cap of bone over the top of it and gum tissue, but we're left with this residual area of bacteria in the jawbone. And that's called a cavitation. In the literature, it's called jawbone osteonecrosis. And so when you first found out about cavitations, did you get yourself checked out and you had cavitations yourself? Or what's your story into this? I could hardly believe it, honestly, that um, we could have a tooth removed and that it wouldn't completely heal. That didn't make sense to me. Uh, but... Uh, I did a little research on it. I began to see that the re there was research back even over 100 years old on this phenomenon. And then interestingly enough, Evan, I don't know if you know the story, but I got sick myself 16 years ago, and I called the grandfather of holistic dentistry. We thought at the time that I had Lou Gehrig's disease. It turned out to be a toxicity issue. But the very first question this man asked me when I when at the time we thought I had ALS, he said, well, did you have wisdom teeth removed? And I said, yes, 30 years ago. He said, well, if you have cavitations, you're never going to get well. So that was my real introduction into cavitations. And who was and this that you called? This was Hal Huggins, who um, was literally the father, grandfather of holistic dentistry. And at that time, he was seeing patients in Montreal and in uh, Puerto Vallarta, I went to Montreal, I had my cavitations cleaned out, and I began to have what I thought was a pretty, 
pretty dramatic recovery as a result of having the procedure done. Now tell people what kind of symptoms you were experiencing and then I want to hear about what else you've seen in other, you know, other people that you work on. Well, I was experiencing neuromuscular issues and some of it would have been uh, the result of of probably the toxicities from the cavitations. But my biggest exposure was from mercury exposure that was um, from my workplace as a dentist. Uh, I hadn't put a mercury filling in in years, but I had been removing mercury and sitting in this little mercury vapor cloud, and it finally overwhelmed me, and I began to have neuromuscular issues. It was uh, severe cramping. It was muscle fasciculations. Fasciculations are twitching muscles that you can see. We all, we all have these from time to time, oftentimes around our eyes, little areas will twitch. But in my own case, I was twitching from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, every muscle. Um, and of course, I had extreme fatigue. So um, part of what was done for me when I went to Montreal was I had my cavitations cleaned out. Um, and I began within a couple of weeks to feel better. It could have been uh, that procedure alone was a big help, uh, but I did a number of other things um, also at Dr. Huggins, um, at his, well, at his encouragement. And that was, I added, honestly, at that time, a lot more healthy fats to my diet. I began to help build tissues, basically with good proteins and good fats, and uh, I began to recover. And it was, a, it was a slow process, but I'm back totally. It took me about three years to totally recover. What did you do for the mercury? For the mercury, um, I did a number of things. I did an IV, a bag of IV vitamin C once a month, um, 50 grams, 50 grams once a month. And I, vitamin C itself is a poor chelator, but it helps amp up our levels of glutathione, which is a fabulous chelator for mercury. So I did that. I was very careful not to be re-exposed. I've only had a few bites of fish literally in 16 years. And then I cleaned up my workplace. I didn't go back to work for weeks until we redid every surface in my dental office, made sure it was clean for me to go back to work and that there was no more mercury present. So I think the three of those, and I think Evan, maybe for me, one of the, one of the most, uh, important steps was I got an infrared sauna and I began to finally sweat again. Sometimes with heavy metal toxicity, you lose your ability to sweat. And I did. So I got in a, I got a good, uh, infrared sauna and I began to sweat and that was very, very helpful. Now, were you unable to sweat at first and then you had to get more sick before you got better? Like when you first got in the sauna, could you sweat or did you? I, I could not. I could not. It actually probably took close to two months uh, getting in there daily before I broke a sweat. Now, did you get uh, sick, though? Because like, for me, I, I've spoke to uh, Klinghart and a couple other docs on the podcast about how when I get in my infrared sauna, I do sweat. But if I did a sauna, let's say at 12 noon, at midnight, I would still be ramped up, like my heart's still racing, almost like I'm dumping metals. I don't know if you think that's what it could be, but that's what I've been told. I think that's possible. In my case... I didn't have that. I didn't have that at all. It actually was a relief for me. I went from being a prolific sweater because I was a triathlete for years and I could sweat at the drop of a hat. But once the heavy metals got to a certain point, I lost my ability to sweat. 
my gosh. And yeah, so when I when I finally broke through again and was able to sweat, it was a real turning point for me. But for those first two months when you couldn't sweat, did you did you get no symptom relief then? I got no symptom relief. Okay, but once you started sweating, then you felt better. I did. That's amazing. So the vitamin C. So you didn't go on any like uh, like uh, N-acetylcysteine, R-lipoic acid, cilantro, chlorella. There's a lot of things people talk about. You didn't have to do any of that. I didn't do that. I did some detox baths, which uh, were just with Epsom salts and a good warm bath where you pull a bath sheet up over you and sort of create this little cocoon-like environment. And you can really, uh, that helps to induce a sweat. And, uh, you know, for me, I think, Evan, one of the most important things was I just avoided uh, exposure. I see a lot of patients, for example, who don't seem to break through, but they never, (laughs) they don't quit eating fish. Uh, And I think it's important. I still, I take, uh, I love fish oil, clean fish oil that's uh, where the contaminants have been removed. But for the most part, most fish, you know, are contaminated now to the point where I would, I, I won't eat fish. You won't even that, eat the small fish. You won't even do sardines. I would like to, I would like to, because I, I just grew up on those sorts of things, but I don't because I had, um, I had such a high level of mercury. I'm trying to do everything I can to avoid that. I hear you. And of course, mine was mostly occupational exposure. The fish may have been a contributor, but the 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 occupation of dentistry uh, really sets you up for neurological diseases. I mean, we're known our our profession is known for a whole host of neurological diseases. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't dentistry like the highest uh, highest incidence of suicide among professionals? We're number one in suicide, depression, divorce, um, and we didn't go into dentistry like that. My classmates, uh, I thought, went in as a very normal group, and I'll have to say we've had our hand, our we've definitely had our share of suicides in the graduating class that I was in in 1980. It's very disappointing and sad uh, that this hasn't been addressed um, long before now, because the research is clear on it, in my opinion. I saw a documentary called Evidence of Harm. Have you seen that one? I have. And about how basically the Dental Association got corrupted back in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Mercury wasn't even part of dentistry. And then it ended up becoming part of dentistry because of corruption. Was that kind of your understanding of it? Yeah, I think um, the thing about it is, Evan, um, the old mercury fillings have had a place because they're cheap. It takes virtually no skill to place them. And uh, the sad thing about it, the sad thing about it is that we have known for years and years and years that the mercury fillings are toxic. And um, the thing that disturbs me most is that is our parent association, the American Dental Association, could have years ago said, hey, listen, we, we've made a mistake. Um, this is a toxic compound. Uh, we'll never endorse it again, but the American Dental Association and others, the Canadian Dental Association and others, continue to defend it. And to me, that's wrong. Yeah. And so there's the whole association that you're part of now, right? The International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, IAOMT. 
Are you part of them? I am. I am. I, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of them because we are, have made a very aggressive stand uh, to try to convince not only professionals around the world, but also the lay public uh, that mercury amalgam fillings, fillings need to be removed from, they need to be removed from dentistry. In fact, even, you know, Evan, um, you can go to the IAOMT.org website and you can see that there's actually a protocol on that website called the SMART protocol, Safe Mercury Amalgam Removal Technique Protocol, which dentists can become accredited in. And then they will be removing, if you have to have mercury fillings removed, they can remove your mercury fillings in a very safe manner using that protocol. And part of the reason you got sick is because back in the day you didn't use that protocol. Is that correct. Right? Okay. That's correct. I just sat there in the mercury vapor fog and and oh finally overwhelmed my system. My God. So you would just drill it and then boom, all that mercury, you're just right in your face. And it's in every dental office in America. If it doesn't, unless there are a number of us now that have all sorts of protection uh, protocols in place so that our environment's clean, so our staff doesn't have to worry about mercury exposure and so that the patients don't, but there are not many dental offices in the world that I'd go into now because um, most are contaminated with mercury. Right. So where does that mercury go? I mean, let's just say they they stop doing it. The mercury's still in the environment, right? In that office. Sure. Yes. Um, so that mercury has to be removed. It can be removed simply by. Uh, scrub down and repainting surfaces, putting new surfaces in. That's what we did. We removed flooring. We removed, we repainted, we did everything. And even we brought in an, an industrial mercury sniffer that's used by the EPA to check for mercury levels to make sure the environment was clean. Wow. And yeah. That's a trip. So let's go. Is is there any? I want to go back to cavitations, but is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of mercury? uh, Finding a good dentist. I tell people all the time: go on the iaomt.org, and you can look around the world and find these professionals. But is there other stuff we should talk about with mercury? No, I don't think so. I think mercury needs to be. You know, we we need to move on. Unfortunately, we haven't moved on because it's still a topic of discussion since our parent organization won't endorse uh, abandoning it. And so we should have moved on from this mercury discussion years ago. Every toxicologist in the world will admit that there's no more toxic compound than mercury, except for plutonium. So we should have moved on years ago and going on to other things I think that are more pertinent, but... uh, Hopefully someday we won't have to deal with this issue anymore. I hope so too. So let's go back to cavitations. I got my scan done and I sent it over to your office and you called me and I said, Dr. Nunnally, I said, I'm busy. I hate to cancel all these calls, these clients, all these podcasts. I said, but if you're sure, I'm going to do it. And you said, Evan, you said, I can't tell you 100%. I said, but looking at your scan, I think you told me on the bottom ones, you thought like 95% certain I think the top one you said was kind of hard to see. So you were like 80, 85% certain. And then you get in there, and what did you find? Well, in your case, um, we certainly did find cavitated areas. And the cone beam that um, you sent me 
is very, very helpful, but it's still not 100% conclusive. Uh, these these little lesions in the jawbone can escape even cone beam detection because the marrow or the medullary bone in a jawbone or any other bone, it's, it's not a dense bone, so you don't see it entirely clearly on cone beam, and certainly you don't see it clearly with two-dimensional standard x-rays. So oftentimes when you or someone else sends me a cone beam, uh, we, of course, we look at we look at hundreds of these a month. <laughs> so we get we we have a we have a better and a better feel for when truly a patient has a cavitation or not. And most times we can say yes, we see cavitated areas. But sometimes, like in your case, I could say I I feel ninety percent certain we're going to find it. And in your case, we did. Oh, so we, you know what? I almost forgot. So the cone beam. The software that the people used locally here, your all staff couldn't even read it. So you actually were looking at my x-ray. It was actually the 2D x-ray, and you were still that confident. Even on something as easy to source for someone listening as an x-ray, you still saw it on there, right? Yes, and, um, you know, of course we have. We're on our second cone beam now in Texas in our office, but um, there are many different cone beams and some of them are easier than others for us to manipulate and be able to read. So what we have, what we advise our patients now is just send us a good panoramic X-ray. Those are fairly standard, and we'll get a good feel for whether, when we see that, we'll get a real good feel for whether you have um, cavitated areas or not. And what so that's what that's what we prefer, just because it's a little bit easier for us to handle it. Right. And now I looked at it with you. So what I saw was on the edges. I mean, I'm eight teeth down just for people listening. I I not only got my wisdom teeth removed, I got all four of my 12 year molars removed too, because I, all of those were impacted. So I was, you know, worse than average, I guess, in terms of my potential for cavitations. And what you showed me was on the edges there next to the six year molars, it looked all dark, even just on the panoramic x-ray, it looked dark. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember that now. I don't happen to have your x-ray in front of me, but I remember that now. And when we see that on a 2D x-ray, it's very suggestive of cavitated areas. I remember one of them you said was pretty deep. You had to go in there pretty deep. So tell me how this goes. I don't even remember you all knocking me out. You did what you call conscious sedation. I wasn't conscious. I was out of it. The next thing I know, I'm waking up and I'm getting acupressure in in the post-surgery room, which, by the way, is so awesome. I really love the idea of pre- and post-acupressure. I really think that helped me relax more. I was not anxious going into it at all. And then also, I mean, you're just kind of a super chill guy anyway, so (laughs) I knew I was in good hands. But I tell you, you're like, Evan, any other questions? I'm like, I don't think so. And then the next thing I know, I'm waking up. So. Uh, so what happens? So I so I go out, and then you go in, and so you I guess you 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 cut an incision. You how do you get in there? And then what do you see once you're in there? We make an incision right over the site that we suspect. Usually it's it's a very small incision. The instruments that we use are um, these are small instruments, and we can get into areas without without creating a wound, a large wound at all. In fact, the incisions that we make, Evan, are small enough, and the technique that we use um, is such that we rarely have to suture these closed. 
Um, and part of that's because we pack these full of your own platelets and platelets are sticky and it sticks all the tissue back together. So in your case, I made a small incision right over the site where it looked like you had osteonecrosis. And we lightly, very, we very gingerly push that tissue, that gum tissue aside. And then we have a, a particular drill. It's like a little rotor rooter. And we can go right through the dense outer plate of bone with that. And it literally, if there's a cavitated area there, we just fall right into it. So we know from our x-rays, from cone beam, where we should be looking. And that's what we do, especially if you've done as many as we have. We, we just we know where to go. And uh, then when, once we find the area, we'll lift the roof off that. We'll take the, that dense outer layer of bone that's grown over this. We'll just lift that off. And we clean that out. We continually clean it and clean it and clean it. We irrigate it and irrigate it and irrigate it. We use ozonated water. We use ozone gas. We use, uh, obviously, the patients on an IV vitamin C drip while we're doing this. And then we pack that full with your own platelets. As you may not remember, but we drew a few extra tubes of blood from you uh, when we were about to sedate you. And we, we put those in a centrifuge. We spin your platelets and stem cells out. We collect those, and then we're able to pack that directly into the side. I do remember and the that's blood draw. Okay. Well, um, you got your own platelets right back into your mandible and maxilla, and you should be completely healed now. Wow. And the only, I think there was only one site, and I think it was because it was a really big area. I think you gave me like one stitch total. Okay. Versus when I had like wisdom tooth extraction, I mean, I probably had 50 stitches, who knows. And then everything else was the platelets. And it was so interesting because I was so paranoid about the pain. Not so paranoid, but I was paranoid because I remember how bad my wisdom tooth extraction and all your staff was like, oh, honey, it's no big deal. (laughs) And I'm like, you have to say that. And no, they were right. Everyone was right because the next day, I mean, of course, I had some pain, but you know, let's say 10 being the worst pain, one being the least pain, I was maybe at a three or a four. Like it was very moderate. Uh, I did come in back to your office the next day to get the post, you know, the post, uh, I guess you call it post-surgery vitamin C drip again. Mm -hmm. And acupressure. And the acupressure. And I did have you give me some extra IV pain meds then. I think it was, was it called cap, cap, what was it? Yeah, it's, it's Ketorolac. Ketorolac. And that, was the, yeah. that wasn't an IV NSAID. And it did work. I, I won't lie. I did need that the next day. But then after that, the pain just by day two, day three, day four, pain was pretty much done. Yes. And in my own case, I had my, when I had mine cleaned out, I literally, I just took Tylenol and I did fine. This was 16 years ago. And the surgery back then, I would say, was a, a, quite a bit more aggressive than what it is now. I think our instruments have improved, and so it doesn't have to be quite as invasive. I would say most patients don't need that NSAID that you got the next day, most people. And it's actually very rare that we have to give a narcotic to a patient um, as a pain reliever. Typically, they get by just on Advil or Tylenol for one night, and they're done. So 
It's amazing. Now, we tested my, my sample, and my buddy, Dr. Justin, he brought up a good point. He looked at my test results from my sample. I don't know if you remember seeing it or not. I was off the charts. I was in, like, the high-risk category for all of those bacterial pathogens that came out of that sample. Now, if you just took, like, a swab of my mouth, not the cavitation, but just my mouth in general, let's say my cheek, would it still show up with all those high levels? Like, would it be? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. Not at all. No, these, what you, what was being tested uh, in those samples was, those were, were bacteria, many of which, by the way, are present in the mouth. But when they, when they get into a site that's an anaerobic site, um, as they are in the jawbone, there's a very poor oxygen supply there. So these, these bacteria become anaerobic and they become much more pathogenic than what you just find, uh, randomly in the mouth. So, uh, no, what you, what you were doing is you were growing, you were growing these anaerobic bacteria in a perfect little culture in a 98.6 degree environment in your jaw bones. And that's, that's what you're seeing on that DNA test. Wow. And just for folks listening, in terms of symptoms, I mean, I was having heart palpitations almost every evening. And that's what I brought up to Dr. Nunnally. I said, hey, you think this is related? And he's like, yeah, probably. And sure enough, you know, that night, uh, when I went back to the hotel to go rest and eat an organic smoothie with a spoon, which was delicious, uh, the uh, I lost my train of thought. So where was I going? What did I start saying? Where the were the palpitations? Oh gone? yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That first night, that first night, mm-hmm. the palpitations. I did not have them that night, and that was the first night that I didn't have heart palpitations in months. Mm. It was happening Wonderful. every night. Well, you see, the other thing, Evan, and we don't think about this much in the traditional allopathic world and the Western medicine world, but the the cavitation sites, wisdom teeth sites, they're also on the heart meridian. And so um, not only are you getting this dose of toxins from those sites, but you're also interfering with the electrical channel that goes through the heart and through the rest of the body. So it, you, we see this very oftentimes that arrhythmias and that sort of thing improve or go away when you clean these lesions out. I had blood pressure elevations too. This happened starting about maybe five or six months before I started, you know, before I came to you, my blood pressure wasn't going sky high, but it was like 145, 140, 145, over 95, sometimes 100 on the bottom number. My blood pressure is perfect now, and I changed nothing else. Well, that's that's good. That's And we love to hear that. And, you know, when you remove a... Just think about this. Um, if we had this sort of toxicity in any other bone in our body, we would we would aggressively treat this and get it cleaned out. In fact, the jawbone is the most common site for these lesions, but the hip bone is also a common site. So, for, for example, athletes um, who get hit on on their hip can also oftentimes become the hip bone can oftentimes become osteonecrotic itself. No you way. Can get a, yeah, you can get a cavity. Bo Jackson, one of the most famous athletes of all time, who was a, both a professional football player and professional um, uh, baseball player and a Heisman Trophy winner from Auburn, 
took a blow in a professional football game to his hip. His hip necrosed. He lost his hip and he lost his career. Holy so, smokes. Yeah. That's insane. Just from trauma can cause cavitation. I mean, I guess you call it a cavitation in the hip or necro- necrosis. Yeah, typically you would call it osteonecrosis of the hip or osteonecrosis of any bone. You can get it in the patella. You can get it in any of the ends of long bones. Any bone that does not have a great blood supply is is you can get these uh, necrotic areas. How would you even in, in, investigate and fix that though? Like well, in the hip or in the hip, um, you can do a, a number of things. You can um, again, you'd have to have an ortho, orthopedic surgeon on here to accurately describe the procedure. But those areas can be numbed. Incisions can be made, and they can be curated out, and then they can either replace that area like we do with platelets or with stem cells or in some cases they may use other graft materials and if it goes too far then they just have to remove that portion of the hip or the whole hip and replace it with a prosthesis now i wonder if that would be like a special surgeon who knows about cavitations i mean your average orthopedic guy is probably not going to know about this would he interestingly enough most orthopedic surgeons know far more about osteonecrosis of bones than we do as dentists oh wow okay it's, it's interesting yeah okay okay cool yeah. uh yeah so so let's let's talk a little more about what happens so we do the next day the vitamin c drip again what's the purpose of the vitamin c drip on the on the post recovery side vitamin c is a fabulous detoxifier and when we clean out any kind of uh, bacterial lesion or viral there are quite a few toxins that re- are, are uh, released into the circulation, and so we love to have plenty of vitamin C on board to help neutralize those. And then vitamin C has been known for years as a great wound healer. Uh, you'll heal in about twice, about twice as fast if you have a good dose of vitamin C as if you don't. So that's what I like it for, a detoxifier and a quick wound healer. I did. I mean, I did heal very fast. The interesting thing about the vitamin C is it causes you to go pee. Like as soon it as does. I got that vitamin C drip, I was like, whoa, I got to go pee. So I wonder, I guess that's maybe it's upregulating the, the detox pathways or. Well, it's, it's, it's what would be called a hypertonic solution. So you, you, your kidneys get activated and you try to dilute that uh, with your, all of a sudden you'll begin to dilute that and you'll pull liquid out. And so you'll have to go urinate for sure. But what we what we do is we just encourage people to drink a lot during their IV drips. Um, and and in case uh, in the case of when we're doing surgery, of course, we put that vitamin C into a lot of liquid so that the patient gets well hydrated along with the vitamin C. But you're right. You do have to urinate. Uh, when you when you do vitamin C in big doses. Interesting. I was super thirsty too, so that makes sense. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a couple people that I've spoke with, and I know you and I chatted about this off air, but I just want to bring it up here. A couple people I've chatted with say, oh, most cavitations don't work and you may have to get two or three or four or five procedures done to fully eradicate this issue. Could you speak on that? Sure. And then and up until the last five years, uh, what they were telling you is correct. Um, there have been 12 studies done to determine how often cavitation surgeries 
failed and they had to be retreated. And in those studies, 40% of them failed. But the truth of the matter is uh, all of these studies were done um, just doing the surgery and not using any any of the protocol that we use today. Uh, None of those surgeries did they use vitamin C. None of those surgeries did they use acupressure or acupuncture. And the real kicker is in none of those surgeries did they reintroduce the patient's own platelets into the surgical site. When you put platelets in and graft a surgical site with platelets, you change the ball game entirely. And we think we're down to less than 1% failures now. It's a game changer. I mean, just the, how fast I healed. I mean, I tried not to touch the area too much, but a couple days post-surgery, I did kind of touch my tongue up there. I couldn't even tell you were in there. No, that's typical. Uh, that's how quickly things heal. When you concentrate a patient's platelets into any area, that's why platelets are used for burn victims. You can, you can press platelets into a sheet that looks like a clear cellophane sheet lay that onto a burn this is what's done oftentimes in burn wards and you grow skin back at twice the rate of what you would otherwise you can introduce them into a bony wound like we're doing and you you improve the healing there uh, quickly very much so and also of course in our case we want new bone and we want new gum tissue i've never seen anything like it evan in the and this is my 38th year of practice. The the one single thing that I could not do without would be platelets. I would agree. They're pretty awesome. I mean, I yeah. don't know if I said this on air already or not, but my jaw pain is completely gone. When I called you, I told you, I said, my jaws are achy every single day. I just wanted to rub them just right yeah. under my ear. I just wanted to rub just, oh, it felt so good to massage that area. So that was probably what was going on. That was why I had that pain. I still feel a little achy under under my jawbone here. I don't know if that's anything mm-hmm. to you. It may that where you're pointing is really more at the insertion of where these muscles on your mandible attach and you are on you literally are on air and your you you use your, you know, you literally, you use your voice, you use your mouth uh, all day long. Every day. And, and so you may literally be fatiguing those muscles where they insert into your mandible here. That may be it. You, it'd be interesting to see when you take a break and when you are on vacation, whether you, these, uh, that goes away. Okay. I mean, I've got a vacation coming up in a couple of weeks, so I may report back to you and give you a little text message. Hey, I'm I'm cured because I talk I talk for eight hours a day every day. Exactly, and that's not typical. You are I think you're fatiguing those muscles. Okay, because it's not the jaw. It doesn't feel like the jaw bone. It feels like right under it there. Yeah, that's and that's the site. That's cool. Yeah. All right, so if people want to reach out, I mean, Stuart Nunnally, that's who you're who you're listening to now. He's my man. I was so lucky because. I was going to have to wait for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden some opening popped up and I had to like basically buy a ticket overnight to fly down there. And I thought, man, I hope this is worth it. And I would say it's definitely worth it. So if people want to check out Dr. Nunnally or the rest of his team, his website, it's healthy smiles for life.com. Or you could just Google Dr. Nunnally. It's N U N N A L L Y, and you'll find his other docs too Freeman, Owens, Dorsey, and they're all awesome. But 
I think you're the most awesome. And, well, uh, you're kind. You know, and Evan, I've been there so long. Now it takes a while to get in to see me. I, if, if you do have listeners who decide to come to Texas, uh, my partners are unbelievable. We've all learned these techniques together. And so they can feel very comfortable seeing one of my partners. If it, if it takes too long to get in and see me, I encourage them to do it. That's where I'd go. I'd go see one of my partners. Yeah, you're, how, how far are great. you booked out? You're booked out, what, months and oh, months, months? Maybe maybe a few months. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. So people can check out the site. Is there anything else you want to say? Any other words of wisdom? Any other general things you want to hit on? No, but thank you, Evan, for coming to Texas and seeing us and um, experiencing what we do and for having me on this podcast. I appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Your teeth are important. Your mouth is important. Hippocrates said all disease starts in the gut, and I think he was right, which is why I focus so much on the gut because that's what helped me the most, and that's what helps my clients the most. However, stuff in your mouth can make you really sick, especially mercury. So if you have silver fillings, does that mean you need to get them out right this second? Probably not, to be honest. It depends on the person. It depends on your detox pathways, your history, how sick are you, how well are you. I mean, that's a stress. Surgery, you know, dental work, that is stressful. So the right place, the right time, the right practitioner. That's my recommendation there. When is that right time for you? I don't know. I would have to work with you and figure out what's going on with you under the hood to tell you whether I think you're ready for it or not. But getting the metal out of your mouth is a good idea because you're leaking mercury into your system every single day if you have mercury fillings, the silver fillings. Those are up to, depending on the manufacturer, up to about 50%, 50% mercury, which is not good. It's a neurotoxin, kills brain cells, accumulates in the brain, leads to many, many different neurodegenerative problems. Watch that documentary I, I talked about here. It's called Our Daily Dose. Look that up. It's amazing definitely worth watching if you live near a crematory you're going to want to move because when the dead people get uh what do you call it they, they get turned into ashes they they put them in the uh, they, they cremate them yes there we go when they cremate them all the silver fillings in that dead person where do you think those silver fillings go mercury is something that just goes right up into the air and you can actually look up the research on this the soil in an area next to a crematory has more mercury in the soil because they're not technically supposed to put that mercury into the air, but no one's regulating that. The crematory doesn't care. They don't know that they're burning the guy's silver fillings when they burn them and the mercury goes into the air and comes down into your your pond and poisons your fish and your creek behind your house. They don't know that. They don't care. Maybe they care, but but they don't know that that's happening. So your zip code is important. Where you live is important. You can't just have a healthy fridge and a healthy gut and healthy supplements, but you live in a place that's toxic. That's why you have to evaluate everything and make the right decisions. That's why I move. When I had dirty electricity and magnetic fields, which are very hard to fix, magnetic fields specifically are very hard to fix because usually that's something coming from power lines or something like that. That's why I just had to pack up and move. That was a couple years ago, but man... I didn't want to take a chance. We know that for children, even over three milligauss increases the risk of leukemia. And my house was at seven milligauss. It's way too high. So I moved. And I'll continue to move if I find other reasons that I have to move. You know, I mean, that's just kind of the nomad philosophy you may have to adopt if you want to get away from a toxic issue. I had a lady up in Chicago, and she found out that her bedroom 
it was either her bedroom or her daughter's bedroom, was 20 milligauss. That's too high. You got to move. You're not going to be able to fix 20 milligauss of magnetic fields. I'll let you go. I'll look forward to talking with you again next week. If you want to reach out to me, or we have Megan on staff as well, you can just go to my site, evanbrand.com. You know how to spell it, I hope. Some people spell my name even. It's not even. It's Evan, E-V-A-N, and the last name Brand, B-R-A-N-D, evanbrand.com. You take good care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss a girl the night and let me please her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible rules. Why I'm in the tire, got to watch out, girl. Don't wanna see her by her eyes out, girl. Cause I've been watching, you've been hurt.